Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have in-depth conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can access at public-library.online. Hi, welcome back to Deep Read. My guest today is my longtime friend, Sharma Dean Reed. I met Sharma when she was just starting War Nails, the vibrant, highly influential nail art salon and community hub she founded in London's Dalston over a decade ago. These days, Sharma is the founder and CEO of The Stack, a network for women leaders, founders and entrepreneurs worldwide, and also the author of a forthcoming book titled New Methods for Women, a Manifesto for Economic Independence, which encapsulates the techniques and ideas on gender equality that have really been the baseline of her varied career. Uh, Sharma has one of the most brilliant minds I've ever encountered. She can really go anywhere and I'm so glad that I'm able to share one of the countless highly stimulating conversations I've been lucky to have with her over the years on this podcast. So I really, really hope you enjoy it. Okay. Okay. So hi, Sharma. Hi, Phoebe. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, actually. I think this is probably about the 20th time I've interviewed you. And I never get bored of talking to my friend. <laughs> in the course of our friendship. Do you know what I was remembering on the way here, actually, is that the first time I ever met you, I was interviewing you. I do remember that, actually. I remember you coming to the salon. Yeah. Been asking you questions ever since. As I said to you the other day, you're, I feel like you grow a new segment of brain every time I talk to you. <laughs> so it's like there, there's always a fresh bit to interrogate. But today, um, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but obviously I primarily want to talk to you about your your book, New Methods for Women, mm. uh, a manifesto for economic in- independence. Something like that, work in progress TV, title. The subtitle CBC, but the, the, the main section is obviously in place, New Methods for Women, which is a great, clear, resounding title. Um, yeah, before we go into New Methods, because there's so much to unpack with it, even from the kind of the bits that I've seen, I just want to talk to you a bit about your life as a reader, because... Mm. You're such a voracious reader and you always have been. And I was just wondering like how that started out for you, like when you were little and what kind of things you were reading and, and how books came into your life, really. Yeah, I actually remember the first book I read. It was Jennifer Yellow Hat and Billy Blue Hat. <laughs> it was like, you know, when you're at school and you get those like picture books that have very short sentences to help you start reading. Yeah. And, um, you know, there were these characters, these four, like, Jennifer Yellow Hat, Billy Blue Hat, Roger Red Hat, I, I think. I feel like I read that one. Yeah, and yeah. then something else I can't remember. And it's really funny because I'm reading this book and while I am reading the words, what I remember from being a child is actually I'm diving into their world I now have access to their world because I can read the words on the page. Mm. And I was like, who are all these little people and what are they doing? (laughs) Like putting cats on mats Mm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I absolutely loved reading and I, you know, I love that phrase voracious reader because there's no other like phrases there. But (laughs) fundamentally, I was hungry. I was like a hungry reader. Yeah. So I read pretty much all the books at my primary school like way before the end and I distinctly remember so I remember the first book I read at primary school I don't know how old I was 
and I remember the last book I read because it was like A was the basic books and K was the like most yeah. sophisticated books you can read through the letters of the alphabet um, in these segments rather. And the K book I read, the last two books I took home to read were um, A Tale About King Arthur and a double book where one half was Phantom of the Opera and then you flipped it over and it was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Wow. And I remember reading that double book as the last book and then putting it back on the shelf and thinking, well, I've read them all now. Now what? <laughs> That's very you. And uh, and school wasn't even what out got yet. For me now? Yeah, what else? <laughs> and it's funny because um, my cousin, when I went home recently, reminded me of a story that I don't even remember when he said that I didn't come home from school and everyone was looking for me and there was like this search party looking for me and then they found me in school in the library where they'd locked up the school and I was still in the library and that library was so beautiful it was like a Victorian school like classic with two quads Mm. um but the library was a new part attached on in the 60s so it was all like the architecture we love mm. it was very like wooden slats light coming through the you know skylights is basically like a mid-century vibe attached to this victorian school and Dream. i just love that library so yeah. that, was, that was primary school primary school i loved primary school so much when you went into secondary school i assume that you sort of began your journey of reading books that have like shaped you more into the woman you are today and the sort of views that you hold can you were there any books that you read in your teenage years that were sort of like really cracked your brain open actually not you know um my senior school library wasn't that beautiful Mm. it was almost like an afterthought cupboard Mm. um and the school stationery shop was like in the front of it and then the library was at the back so I actually didn't spend a lot of time in that library and to be honest my senior school was so exhausting I was tired all the time Mm. um it's really funny you ask that because I don't actually remember reading or enjoying any books at senior school I remember the first time I had to read a book for school and hating it Mm. it was Northanger Abbey and I thought this book is so dry like it's so quaint English and dry and why am I reading it wasn't exotic you know like yeah phantom of the operas is it's out yeah. there <laughs> like the, the curriculum for english literature in in this country it's wild to me it i, I can't even I, I can barely remember a single book i read in secondary school that's what i'm saying maybe like catcher in the rye <laughs> i i would have been lucky if i read that no like, actually it wasn't even that it was of mice and men that's the one yeah, it's funny because I see these films with like senior school people having these big literary moments. It's funny because I watched Dead Poets Society just three days ago. Mm. Um, I never had that. My senior school was so focused on business, tech, science. Mm. It was like a really innovative school that, yeah, I don't recall reading at senior school that much. Mm. However, when I went to um, like like uh, university and college... Mm that's when I started reading much, much more and much more varied texts. Mm. I remember reading, like, loving Kafka. I read a lot of European, like, literature, you know. But you weren't studying literature, right? So that was just more personal No, no, I studied fashion communication at Central St. Martins, but what was really 
good about that course is it was effectively a history lesson in right. like society. So you do you do do fashion, but you learn about because it's not a design course; it's a comms course. Um, they take you through history and how everything affects the fashion. So you wouldn't just look at the fashion; you'd look at the politics. Mm the books, the films, the music, everything. Mm. Um, and I don't, like, I love the library at Central St. Martins, but if I'm honest, my first boyfriend who I moved to London with was studying at University of East London. Mm. And he was doing uh, music culture studies or something like that. So I would go to his library, which was incredible. It was yeah. like where I really started getting into sociology, anthropology, and his library was 24 hours. So, like, we would go there and just sit in the library, like, all night. I remember reading in his library books on, like, ethnography, like how to um, gather data properly mm. and just, like, biases in data, even though that word wasn't, like, mm. used that much then. And... um yeah, I think at university, because the course was not that demanding, I just had a lot of spare time to read. Mm. And I, I'm the kind of person who, I like anything immersive. So if I'm into something, as you all know, Phoebe, I get obsessed <laughs> with it. You are into it. So, and I don't just like, I'm, I don't just obsess about it, I live it. So yeah. if I'm reading, like, I don't know, French, you know, a French book yeah. I want to read it while lounging around by a pool yeah I want to be eating French food drinking I French I want, I want the whole 360 yeah. while I'm reading it I thought know? about that aspect of your character recently because I was reading Vanity Fair diaries oh, yeah. and I remember you telling me you know, like when she talks about the places that she lived sorry for the, for the listener who may not have read it this is obviously the um the diaries kept by tina brown the famous editor of um vanity fair in the 80s in new york which is just like such a juicy read but i remember Sharma telling me about when i walked to her house no you, you telling me about your vision for you know i'm jumping way way ahead now but like for relaunching you know launching the stack and kind of pivoting it and yeah. your whole vision for it being like for entering the media industry and like, you know, and then you've got this amazing apartment that you live in with this view of London. And like, mm, yeah. I just thought this is how Sharma creates the worlds that she creates with her work is that she builds the whole thing out. Yeah. So it's funny cause I was reading that book and I just think Tina Brown is such a legend. And, um, I love diaries in general as a yeah. snapshot in time for, yeah. you know, that same thing, like look at, all cross industries about what's going and she does that really well like yeah. she talks about not only what the magazine was like but what the politics were like mm. the characters that were around and around yeah. around and about in New York so I was like if I'm gonna do this and it, it's part subconscious as well it's part like me saying this is what I want and it's part me subconsciously thinking mm, I fancy this and then actually it's because of that thing that I'm reading or the world I want to inhabit so then I moved as you said into an apartment with a city view because I was mm. like this is a apartment for a media mogul <laughs> but actually even more like weirdo this is the type of weirdo I am I walked all the way from my house to her house where in she London. lived in London the one in uh Chelsea, by, Chelsea? by Tate Britain Tate Britain that's so I looked at it yeah. on the map because she keeps talking about this house that she had in yeah, London. She does, yeah. So I was like, 
I'm just going to walk there. So I walked there <laughs> the whole way down the river and then I looked at the house and then I walked back. Yeah. That's, yeah. So what, um, just to go back a bit, you know, when you were... I think that's so interesting that books help you sort of like actualize and manifest these sort of subconscious desires that you have. Like it almost helps you put it, put, put it all together. Mm. Um, but sometimes the books... It's funny because I think about this with Roman right now. So my son, he's 11 and he reads what he wants to read, but he doesn't like classic stuff. Mm. And I was thinking about how Roman has a lot of my personality in terms of his obsessive immersion. Yeah. So right now he's downstairs in my office creating a Lego Star Wars stop motion animation. And this morning he's been watching Star Wars all day. Right. And then he'll read a Star Wars book and then he wants to wear a Star Wars T-shirt. He's just obsessed with things. Mm. And um, also how they affect his personality. So I know, So now he's started speaking in philosophical quotes because <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi does, right? So what I love about teenage dumb when you're reading is how you take on the character. Mm. And how so much of your language and mannerisms can be defined by it. So, mm. like, you know, when you're reading, um, you know, something that, like, let's say is a bit more melancholy, you just start acting in this, like, mm. melancholy, I'm just alone in the city, melancholy yeah. vibe. And you're like, I'm going to wander the city alone and sit in a cafe and watch people. Because it's like the original main character energy, but, like, with literary fiction exactly. rather than influences. <laughs> literally that. And also, I think it's really, like, I've got, I, there's a um, there's a book I read... Oh, I can't remember. I think it's Jean Rees or Jean Rees. And um, she's English, actually, so it's Jean Rees, right? And she wrote a book set in Paris, and I can't remember the title. But I remember after reading that book, I started to take on the vibe of that character. And mm. I also hate this, but that character, took my, all my thoughts are in the character's voice for at least a couple of weeks afterwards. Wow which is so annoying sometimes. It's like, <laughs> especially capturing the rye because it's so mo like yeah. internal monologue. All of my internal monologue is then the character of that book. And sometimes it's not good because why am I acting melancholy and like forlorn when I'm not actually that person? <laughs> yeah. But other t times when you're a teenager, it's nice to feel that angst. Well, I guess you've just got a very, you're like very visual that combination of visual and words really imprints itself in your mind. It's why you can create worlds mm. because you've got that powerful imagination. So I guess it works the other way where you just yeah, absorb a bit more than is like desirable. So if you didn't really have that sort of moment of, I'm, I'm just trying to create some sort of through line with like your book, which we'll talk about in a second. And Oh, okay. Sorry. I didn't no, no, not at all. The original not question. The I'm book that cracked my head open. Yeah, I guess so. Just because, new methods which we will talk about but it's so you know it is this like very powerful manifesto with you know quite a radical um oh someone's blasting music outside with this sort of radical perspective and and i'm sure that a lot of that's been formed i know that a lot of it's been formed through what you've read so i'm just wondering like was there this moment in uni or when you were like damn yeah, it wasn't actually at uni and it wasn't actually that early. Um, 
I'd like to give you a story about reading some feminist literature, you know, age 13 and being like, this is what I wanted to do. <laughs> but that's not actually what happened. Mm. Um, the it's It's funny that we've just talked about secondary school literature and the teenage books you read because they're almost all uh like quite masculine or if they're f you know feminine they're quite um sad yeah. women traditional old, yeah old sad women who can't marry someone yeah that's all english literature curriculum yeah. right yeah and it was only when i was um Firstly, it was only when I moved to London that I started thinking about gender at all. I mm. never thought about gender once before mm -hmm. I was 20. Mm -hmm. Because I always did whatever I wanted. I never had anyone tell me, you're a girl, therefore dot, dot, dot. I played football from when I was age five years old with the boys. And the boys never made me feel like I couldn't play. I distinct. I have such a strong memory of playing football at five with all the best boys who were playing football, and I played football all the way till I was sixteen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was weird. Like I, I can't even recall, and this could be also my naivety. I don't recall gender and then race being a factor, any limiting factor for me until I was moved to London. Interesting. So then when I moved to London and I started noticing um, gender imbalance and racial imbalance, that's when I started to explore it, which I did first through War magazine. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't, you know, the first issue distinctly says we aren't feminists. Mm -hmm. And it was that, again, that's my, uh, you know, conditioning around what feminism or equality was. Mm. And then uh, a woman, Martha Cooper, the photographer, wrote me a letter, an email saying, I loved your magazine, but why have you written you're not a feminist? You are a feminist. This is a feminist text. Mm. And I was like, okay, what is this? And that's when I started learning and reading. It's so interesting. That is, that is, I didn't know that. And like, if I was, if anyone said to me, what was, what was what? Like as a zine, I'd be like, that was a feminist zine. Well, if you look in issue one and you look at the editor's letter, it distinctly says, we, we ain't feminists. So funny, isn't <laughs> it? It's crazy. But it's really, really interesting because just recently, I constantly reread the beauty myth because it's just so brilliant. And mm. there's a bit in the beauty myth about um, intergenerational bonds between women being broken intentionally to avoid the wisdom of older women being passed on to younger women, which would then make them feel safe and secure mm. and not fear aging. Mm -hmm. Um which is in your is in one of the sort of subjects exactly of your book. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny because Martha, if Martha Cooper hadn't sent me that email, mm. there would have been no one in my circle who would have said to me, "You are a feminist. This is what it is. Mm. This is what you believe," and effectively put language around my feelings. Mm -hmm. So that part of that beauty myth is true, um, which is why I've made it a method, right? Mm. So even then, though, I was still too young, too conditioned, mm. and also um, the macro trends at the time of Ladek culture were too strong mm. for me to truly go into those texts and get them. I remember trying to read um, Jermaine Greer when I was like 20 and really not being able to process it or comprehend it. Mm. I think there's something really important as well about reading books when you're ready for them yeah. and not like forcing it. 
um, which I've done over and over again. I'll buy a book, and if I find it too incomprehensible, I don't force myself to read it. I just put it back on the shelf because the moment will come when it will make sense to me. All I did understand was the feelings of the women around me, which were, you know, oppression, (laughs) Mm. and being able to put that into a modern... A magazine or a vibe or whatever a blog post mm. um as I got older and continued on through life I still didn't really read any um literature that I would say is the beginning point of the thread of new methods until I started a business and started reading business books mm. um Firstly, business books on just everything from, like, you know, tech, software, how to start a startup, etc. But then I started discovering some successful people in business and reading their biographies. Mm. So, for example, I would read Ray Dalio's Principles or I would read Michael Bloomberg's On Bloomberg. And I found these really interesting Bibles or tomes or like philosophy, personal philosophies of how they conducted business. And I just started thinking, wow, all of my inspiration right now is coming from these really older white men. And it's good, but it can't possibly understand where I'm coming from mm-hmm. or like the things that might hold me back. So there's uh, an, a baseline starting point for a white male founder of which there are barriers to overcome Mm. to help them start their business and build, you know, the next multi-million billion dollar business. The thing as I was reading those books is my baseline is so much further lower or my starting point is so further back Mm -hmm. that I need to get to zero before I even can get to one. You know, what? like for example, Peter Thiel, zero to one. I read that and I was thinking, this is cool, but I'm on minus five right now. Like, <laughs> I ha- um, you know, black women aren't being funded. I'm also a mother. It doesn't talk anything about how you want to start up if you're a parent. It doesn't mm. talk about how you create a life for yourself that you're happy with. It's like grow, grow, grow. So as I'm reading these books, I was thinking about my like what are all the things that I need to do to get me to zero because at the time I was reading these books I was like I said very low like mentally physically emotionally and in my business you know it was a big brand but I didn't know if I wanted to or could scale it Mm -hmm. so I started recording like things that I need to do um this is all wrapped into also a healing journey of me being like 26, 27, 28 and being like, what the hell am I doing with my life? I hate where I am now. I need to sort my life out. Then a lot of these um, uh, business leaders talk a lot about uh, spirituality and philosophy. Mm -hmm. So I've always been a spiritual person and a philosophical person. Mm -hmm. But I started digging deeper into references that they would make. So the two largest references that are always name-checked by successful white men are Buddhism and Stoicism. They do love that They love it, right? (laughs) So I started thinking more about uh, Buddhism and more about Stoicism and reading original texts. Mm. I found that Stoicism suited me more. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just resonated with me more. Yeah. And also, as I said earlier, there's an aesthetic that I love. I love the classics Mm. in general. Mm -hmm. I always have done. When I was seven, I wrote two plays from, I rewrote two, I wrote 
Hades and Persephone mm. for the assembly to perform. <laughs> it's in my record of achievement, Phoebe. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really cool. Like, I actually just loved Greek myths. I've right. always loved Roman and Greek myths since I was like I mean, your son's really literally called young. Roman. Yeah, <laughs> like really, really young. They These are some of the earliest books I read. In fact... Now that I remember one of my prized possessions, I still have a copy of Jason and the Argonauts that I've had since I was seven. Right. Like, I loved them. So Stoicism as a whole world thing really appealed to me. So you were reading like Seneca. Precisely. So then a book I read uh, that I absolutely loved was Epictetus on Human Freedom. I actually love mm. Epictetus' writing. I think it's really timely and quite funny. That's quite a is that quite that's quite a brief it's one. really yeah. thin. Yeah. And it's the kind of book that you can put in your back pocket and just pull out. Um I also read, which I think I've told you before, I read like Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which yeah. really blew my mind. Right. Um and so there's these themes of getting from minus five to zero mm. plus um like it's basically liberation freedom you know how mm. d- what does it mean to be human mm-hmm. and any of texts whether it's uh biographical or philosophical that's what i was reading mm. then i read the the thing that made me think i'm going to write a book the book that made me think i'm going to write a book is a room of one's own mm-hmm. because I was now and this is really old I like not old but late in the journey yeah I would have been 32 or three maybe yeah and I was at such a low point I'd done so much work on myself from like 26 all the way through but I was still n- like not feeling content mm. um like no, uh, hadn't just hadn't clicked. No anxiety mm. is how I describe it. Like mm. I, I wasn't there yet. So I was reading Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, and I was reading this book, and it's so good and so well written, and such an internal monologue of the state of the world that I flipped to the front of the book and looked at what year it was written because mm. I hadn't actually been that. F- familiar with wolf or like before and it was 1928 Mm. and I was like what the hell how is this book describing a situation that I still feel today and it's 1928 Mm. and I felt that like the stoicism books I was reading were 2000 years old and still relevant but they weren't describing like gender issues they were describing like how to live a good life or how to be a good person what this book was describing was a like all of these various threads around gender that are still so prevalent today and the book was almost 100 years old. Yeah. And immediately I thought, fuck, there's got to be a new way to operate because if we operate in the way that we are still today, it's going to be another 100 years and there'll still be the same problems. And at the time, the gender pay gap was being reported that it wasn't going to close for 135 years. So I was like, what's the new method? Because this is ridiculous. And that's when I thought, okay, that's my book. I'm going to write new methods for women because there's no way that I want someone 
to be reading my book in a hundred years time like I'm reading Virginia Woolf and mm. actually everything's still a problem yeah you've got to go I'm going to I'm going to quote you here because it's one of my favorite lines in your introduction my desire is for this manifesto to be obvious in 10 years redundant in 20 and downright absurd in 100 yeah it's funny isn't it because um you know like how um Yuval Harari always says that human rights are a myth mm. like that the idea of human rights is just something we we made made up mm-hmm. like as a myth and I was thinking how when you look back in history something seems so absurd that mm. you're like how the hell were they even operating like that right and I want people to look back in a hundred years and be like what women did all the childcare? that can't be right like wow this is prehistoric peoples in 2022 and and they got paid less literally i want people to be like how crazy just like how people look back at victorian periods and think how crazy is it that we like wore corsets to literally Mm. people were fainting because they were wearing corsets but people (laughs) are still wearing corsets today they're still wearing girdles and shapewear and you know what I mean spanked up to the eyeballs spanks and all of that but you know I want people to think that's weird right yeah I mean not to mention the endless you know hair removal like makeup body mod- Ugh, crazy on and on anyway so what um how do you feel like what is the central premise of new methods that you, that makes it new that's a very good question, Phoebe. It, there's loads of things in it that ain't new. Right. Um, and I say that in the intro. It's an amalgamation of all of the ideas that women have been writing about for 500 plus years, probably more if there were, you know, evidence of that writing. Um, but I'm still shocked how few people have read the basic feminist literature Mm. but then I'm also not surprised because I didn't read it until I was in my late 20s early 30s so I guess what I'm trying to do is create not an anthology but like a summary of ideas but how they might work for us today Mm. and then there are new ones that I think are relevant for us in our day and age around visibility Mm. you know um Women 100 years ago didn't have an issue about being visible to 2 million people right. every day, yeah. which puts an additional pressure. We, sure. th- this is a new problem for us. Yeah. And there are definitely solutions and options for it that I like outline in the book. I mean, in the three prior interviews I've done to this, that's come up. Obviously, I'm interviewing women who write, so it's more likely that it will come up because they have the pressure to maintain somewhat of a public profile. But... I I would agree that's definitely a new thing that women are trying to navigate. Mm. But then the old issues such as domestic labour, which has been, which is thousands and thousands of years old. Mm. um, People have put forward ways to solve it. And I guess what I'm trying to do with my book is say that all of the solutions are available to you Mm. if you want to implement them Mm -hmm. so you know there's so many different stages to implementing a method for equality or equity the first thing for me is like even just knowing it's a possibility Mm -hmm. so you need um, 
visible role models for what that possibility looks like. So let's, the childcare is an easy example for me to talk through because I've literally lived it. Yeah. So you have to see that it is possible to have 50-50 childcare. Mm. And if you've never seen that, so let's say you're from a town where every single mom, you, you know, has their kids full time mm. or the dads pick them up every other week or they don't know their dad, dad the children don't know their dads like I didn't. Mm. Um, if you only ever have that, you, it, it's hard for you to even fathom that it's possible that the dad comes and picks them up for half the week. Yeah. So you need to see, know that it exists. Then you need to see visible role models. Then you need logistical action. So how does it work? Well, we map it out. We enforce it. If you can't enforce it uh, civilly, you force it through law. And then this is how the exchange works. And these are the rules around it. Yeah. That's why I've called it methods, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, Obviously, you're a very pragmatic person you're not really interested in like just the philosophizing of philosophy you want no you have to yeah I really love the application of it even if it's just an experiment yeah and then you know once you've figured it out logistically you need to have the strength the inner strength especially to maintain it yeah because the thing about all of these methods or all of the things that women might do to lead to their you know independence or liberation Mm. it's really hard when the world is still throwing shit at you all the time to stand firm like a lighthouse I always think of this lighthouse like you know to to not be in choppy waters like to not be a little dinghy that's just been tossed around like how do you act like the lighthouse it's very very difficult I mean at times it feels it's exhausting. It, it, exhausting, impossible. Like you lose sight of it all the time. You don't even know what, like you say, you don't even know what it looks like. Mm. I mean, I, um, I was, I wrote my newsletter yesterday about how I've like subconsciously spent the whole summer reading sort of a lot of memoirs and diaries mm. by women who've like lived quite subversive lives. And I think what I'm trying to do is constantly look for models because there aren't any even, and these are mostly women actually who lived in the sixties and seventies yeah. or eighties because it's like you say, you know, and maybe it's the result of the thing that you talk about in your book where the, the generational knowledge is almost squashed or flattened mm. by culture every generation. So you kind of have to start from scratch. Exactly. But like, I'm like, it's 2022 and I'm looking around and I don't really see any women whose lives, by which I mean the combination of the domestic life and the professional life, are really anything I can model on, mm. you know? Nothing really... <laughs> women just seem like they're getting scammed left, right and centre. And then I think, you know, you combine that with, as we've experienced even in our sort of like... Within within the context of our generation, any sort of attempt to find a new version of feminism gets squashed, mm. you know? So there's like a couple of things there. The first thing is around... When I was writing the book... I initially just wrote it as, like, essays, yeah. you know? And then, after a while, I was like, there's no... This this book's too, like, wet. It's too... Uh, it's basically not radical mm. or revolutionary mm. enough. So when you're looking at these women from the 60s and 70s, that is the peak of radicalism and mm. revolutionary, revolutionary culture that we've had... Mm you know, in our known, like, lifetimes that we can look to and model. And then the 70s and, eight, you know, the decline of the 70s and then, you know, the capitalism of the 80s, everything else, 
there's no space for being a radical or a revolutionary. There's no space for subversion or mm. because if you subvert in that way, it tends to come at an economic cost. Like you're basically outcast, right? Right. Um, so it's interesting to me that like the 60s and 70s are resonating with you because they do me as well because that's when you saw a whole amazing generation of women doing whatever the fuck they wanted for the first time in like known history, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's, it's a shame that that is like, what, 50, 60 years ago? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that there are no like new models that you find. Well, uh, we still idolize those women of that generation, like the Angela Davis and the, you Yeah, know. they're still the icons. Yeah. Um, and what they say is still so relevant as mm. well. The thing is, this is the second point I want to make, is what I try and get across in the book is you have to find your own model. Mm. Because if you're searching for all of them, like if you're searching for various women to align your uh, like lifestyle with, you do you're in such a different place, time, you know, you're fighting different forces, you're fighting different enemies, mm. that it's very, very difficult to live um, like a woman from the 1960s or 70s mm. now because the the rent... <laughs> literally, <laughs> like, literally, that's the first thing I come to every time, I'm like, every the economic time, situation. The economic situation is not the same. Yeah. The um, community situation is not the same. Like, the education system is not the same. Like, nothing is the same as it was in the 60s for you to be able to replicate that lifestyle. Yeah. So I talk a lot about living in communes. Right. Like, I'm quite obsessed with communal living. And mm. I do think that in my future, you know, that I want to do something around property, housing, communal living for women. Because I think that this it would be a massive problem solver mm. like to have shared resources mm. not just for women but for society as a whole like I'm really really interested in it but it's a long-term thing and I think when you look at how our world is set up now it's not set up for community at all mm. so whereas in the 60s and 70s there was a lot more fluidity about where you could live like just pack your bag and go somewhere I can't even imagine someone just packing their bag and saying, I'm going to go to Suffolk and live on a farming community and like be, you know, with my fellow Better women. Better have two million pounds in the bank. Exactly. So I think like visibility is key, but take the principles of other women to kind of find and set your own. Yeah. Like in the book, what I'm trying to do, the opening chapter talks about knowing yourself. It's called I think self-reflector self-design right and the reason for that is is like if you don't know what you want you're creating this hole that is going to be filled and fundamentally hacked by corporations advertising mm -hmm. all kinds of um messages to basically tell you who you should be and fill that hole for you so I feel like in terms of role modeling you know, there's a tension between visibility of women. Like I said earlier, you've got to know it's possible. But then wouldn't it be good to define your own game or your own, your own possibility? So based on your intuition, because I, I do feel, Phoebe, that women, like they'll feel that something's not right. It's insane. You just like, oh, that, 
the way that person spoke to me doesn't feel right. My situation with my partner doesn't feel right. The amount of housework I'm doing doesn't feel right. But you, like, you drown that voice out or you soften it. Or it's drowned out. Or it's drowned out. Or you think, you question yourself or you doubt yourself because Mm. we've been told to question ourselves Mm -hmm. and doubt ourselves over and over again. Mm -hmm. And what I really want people to do by the end of the book is every time they hear that tiny intuitive voice, Mm. they then act on it. Mm. They use it as a data point for what they actually want or like. And it doesn't apply across everything, right? So like, some people are really uh, finicky about their, you know, how someone talks to them, let's say, in a meeting. Someone else might not be as sensitive to that. But if you are sensitive, you need to file it, log it, mm. think about how you want to be spoken to, communicate mm-hmm. that, and then design your own principles and your own manifesto and your own handbook for how you want to move mm. through the world. And it's it's really funny because... Um, So I'm going on holiday in a couple of weeks with uh, two, three families. Mm -hmm. And they're both like long-term partners, you know, 2.4 children, all of that. And I'm there with Roman, um, you know, as a lone parent. And it's funny because I was thinking about how I would used to do that and feel like a loser. I used to feel like, oh... There are all these married people and they're pitying me, you know. If I go to <laughs> envying a, you, I'm sure. If I go to a married friend's house, yeah, um, I always think they're pitying me. No, but now, or I used to. Now I think, how radical is it that I am so chill with the concept of potentially not being married, even though I'd love to be married. Um, but I'm chill about it because it's like I've designed this life that works so well for mm. everyone. I've designed a life for me, for Roman, for Roman's father um, that basically like suits us all yeah. because I have half the week to do whatever I want to pursue my goals, my self-care, mm. my community, my friendships, everything. And, uh, and my pleasure, essentially. I have space for my pleasure. Mm. And I just think that's quite radical to be okay with it not to Mm. just do it but then to be content with it and not feel that like you know oh I'm I'm being an amazing like co-parent but then going home and like crying every night that you're like alone do you get what I'm saying I'm I'm obviously very aware of the challenges of your life but I'm not gonna lie look at the way your life is organized and I think well that looks absolutely ideal she gets half the week to herself she's got an amazing son she's with half the week you know time is very clearly delineated Without getting too personal, I wonder, you know, how would that work if you were with a partner all the time? I'm like, because no, right. obviously when I say I look around for models, you're one of my models. Yeah. I look at, you know, you're one of my models. You as a, a woman who like has a child, runs a business, has an extremely intense schedule, but seems to be able to carve time to enjoy yourself, to study, to read. And I'm like, okay, how can I do that if I'm actually going to be in a relationship? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting because it's a question I ask myself as well. Yeah. Like, let's say tomorrow I meet the man of my dreams. Right. And because I am intuitive, I'm like, right, we're getting married. We're building a life together. This is it. Yeah. It's, I'm actually quite selfish with my time, like for myself. And, you know, I'm spinning like, me, my son, my work, my friends, 
And then to add a partner into the mix, it, something's got to give, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, yeah, the way I visualize it, because I've obviously planned it out for myself, is that by the time that day comes, I'd like to think that there has already been a level of independence that has been uh, set foundationally so that the two lives are coming together not to make a whole but to be additive mm -hmm. so I do imagine that I've already got my homes my wealth mm -hmm. you know all of my security is already set so mm -hmm. there's no anxiety of that the purpose of that partner is to build a life together because I don't already have one. Mm -hmm. The purpose of that partner is that we are a unit, we're learning, we're enjoying, we're traveling, we're experiencing. We're basically doing all the bougie shit you get mm. to do like <laughs> later on, bits. you know, the good bits. Yeah. So I think that like, you know, I do, I do think that it would be interesting. I mean, we just have to wait and see, don't we? But I'm also quite, I'm very, very chill about it. And I wasn't before, like I said, I had to do so much work on it and not feel that Sunday scare is like I'm going to die alone. Um, but I think building a relationship with myself was the key thing to being like, do you know what? For me to be able to have my Sunday to myself and not have to go to my boyfriend's parents, friends, barbecue, <laughs> wedding, christening, every week is actually a dream and I do think that I've gotten to a place right now where I'm so independent it's almost dangerous mm. dangerous it, to who it's dangerous because firstly I'm not malleable to anyone I make choices that I want to make I don't make choices because out of desperation mm. Um, and I just don't care about loads of things. It's really funny. Like, it's funny how, you know how rich people carry themselves with an entitlement, a blaseness. Yeah. It, what it, it's a knowledge of their safety. Yeah. That's it. And but women it, are so unsafe in general that to have this knowledge of your safety. Yeah. Is so powerful. Like I go into situations right now and I'm like, do you know what? It's all chill because if anything goes wrong, I've got my money to pay. Like I can yeah. get, I can exit this situation because I've got my money to exit it. Mm. Which makes me go into my situations with confidence, with an abundant mindset, not a mm -hmm. scarcity mm -hmm. mindset, which then compounds into the making of the more money. Do you mm. get what I mean? Yeah. I mean, money is a, is a ticket out of any situation really. But obviously, as you point out with, with the kind of structure of your methodology, you need you need your wits about you as well. You need the self-confidence. You need the self-awareness. Like it all comes as a, a package. I do find it interesting that you would use the word dangerous though, because it's like it, even with someone who's given it this much thought, like that's still how you frame yourself within the context of society. Like that you're not malleable. Therefore you're a threat, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like when you know your own mind and you can't be persuaded, that is threatening to the forces that rely on your labour. Right. That's so literally it. It's, it's like the enti our entire world is propped up on the unpaid labour of women. Yeah. Like nothing, you know, our global system would collapse if everyone just put their hands and said no more. 
like this is as far as I've I'm willing to go and I'm not yeah. willing to go any further. We've carried the back of civilization. We've literally, carried civilization on our backs. Literally. We've done enough. That is terrifying. Yeah. So you have to suppress that, right? Mm-hmm. People want to suppress it to continue earning the money that they're earning. Like, um, so it is dangerous because what we're talking about is total global disc- destruction, mm. which I know sounds quite <laughs> conspiracy theorist. In fact, there's so much about the book when I was writing it. I was like, I sound like a conspiracy theorist well, right now. No, I mean, you know, what? it's part of a shift like that of you know what we hope as you say in 100 years this these ideas will seem laughable because we will have entered a new era where of we're not in a patriarchy anymore um so i just wanted to ask you a couple more quick questions because i feel like we've covered a lot of ground there and and you know obviously your your book is structured in this really interesting way and i find the way that you're rolling it out really interesting because i believe from in two weeks time you're going to start doing chapter by chapter with the premium members of your community at the stack why did you decide to do it like that what what's the what's the thinking behind behind sort of effectively you're going to release most of the material before the book's publication is that right yeah I think um why did I decide to do it like that firstly I think out of fear that my ideas were not good Mm. um so I thought, well, if I test them on a live audience, mm. I can see if there's any legs to this. Sort of workshopping it. Yeah, because like, I do do... The, the, the new methods that I've done for myself, I thought were normal. But other, when I do tell some people, they're like, that's weird or that's abnormal. Which one would you say has got the response, that response more than others? Um... Well, the childcare thing, a lot of people are like, that would never work for me, mm. is a big one. I think that you're, you've always been very biohacky. And as I get older, I'm more inclined to, even though I'm not as sort of like techie as you, I, or, or sort of data driven rather, I'm a bit more like whatever. <laughs> but I find that my life now is so my energy levels fluctuate every single day or, you know, I often feel sick or I'm tired or to the point where it kind of runs my life. And I say to my boyfriend, he's like, you're all right. And I'm like, no, I've got a headache. I've got a stomachache. I'm exhausted. And he's like looking at me like I've got like, like I'm a hypochondriac. Mm. And I'm like, I just don't think you understand what it's like being in a woman's body. Like your experience of being in it changes every Mm -hmm. single day. And it's shifting now. But as you write in, in the, in your new methods, like our culture is not at all, arranged to to honor that no and actually the selfishness there's lots of um most of the methods are quite selfish actually right because they center you first yeah i was going to ask you about that actually because obviously you make a point of of saying like this starts with with the individual and with the self whilst being rooted in like a strong belief in community I I agree that to to make change feel feasible, it has to start with yourself. And and if you don't have any underst- if you haven't had any of those moments of enlightenment with your individual experience, it's very hard to like play into a bigger 
bigger picture? I think just generally doing the work that much gets challenged. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the reason why I can't think specifically necessarily about one of the methods that gets a lot lot of objection is because I think that whether people know that they're doing it or not I feel that I get or not get now but in my past have had a lot of judgment and criticism from friends over the way that I decide to live my life Mm. Um, and that could be anything from really snidey comments on like uh, you know, you're always so busy mm. or like you work too much mm-hmm. or, you know, your son gets passed around a lot or, um, you know, you don't, um, you're not a good leader because of X, Y, Z. And I think that while I always look for some truth in criticism, mm. what I am actually looking for is what is it about the way that I'm living makes you feel so uncomfortable? Mm. Uh, because that tends to be where the criticism comes from. What mm. I've noticed anyway is a level of discomfort. Mm. Um, and I think the book is, as a whole, can be uncomfortable for someone who's not ever thought about those things or questioned those things or challenged those things. Mm. Like recently I was speaking to a friend of mine who's, an amazing female founder of a, you know, amazing healthcare startup. And I didn't know, she she told me on a trip away that up until she was 30, she just thought she was going to be a consultant, get married, have two kids, because that's what her life from pretty much when she was born was heading towards mm. because of the family she grew up in, the friends she had, etc. Mm. And she did it, you know, doing an accelerator and breaking away from that was so odd for her family and it's odd for her, like she su- she surprised herself. And I think that that's what this book is about, is like surprising yourself over the things that are possible to you, but mm. getting through that discomfort um, from yourself or from others first. So mm. like I said, you know, this could also be to do with my personal issues around rejection or abandonment or judgment or criticism. But I don't feel like people who are close to me, not not my, you know, followers or people who are fans of me on the Internet, people who actually know me. I don't particularly think they respect the way that I live. Mm. Um, I think they look at it and they're like, that's not for me. Do you know what I mean? So I think that like. The objection is to the self-design and to the selfishness and to the uh, power to like put yourself first. Mm. And when I was doing, the reason I've, you know, to answer your question, the reason that I've released it in this way or I'm releasing it is a few reasons. Firstly, the fear that this selfishness was going too far. Mm. Like these are all the things that I do. This is how I live my life. Um, it might not look it on the internet because Instagram shows a very different lifestyle to the one that I actually live day to day. Mm. So the actual living day to day might be being so bored at a dinner party that I literally take (laughs) my book out and start reading it at the table. (laughs) 
and people are like, that's rude. And I'm like, but you've got your phone at your table, so what's the difference? Right. And people might be, well, Sharma's rude, I'm not going to invite her back to dinner, but I literally don't care because this was so boring. Like, you don't see that whole encounter on Instagram, right? Mm. Um, so it might be like, so for me, I was like, are people going to think that I'm a nutbag? So let me just stress test them first. So the way that I did it is I would write the essay I emailed the essay on a Friday to all of the Stackworld member network. And then on Monday, either at lunchtime or in the evening, we would get together and discuss the essay and I would do a presentation illuminating like what the essay was about. Mm. Then I'd put everyone into breakout rooms to be like, what are their thoughts on it? Mm -hmm. And then that was it. And I did that for an entire year Mm. for every chapter of the book pretty much and also some you know, new ones that were timely. And I didn't really promote it hard or I didn't, like, it wasn't to see what would sell. So I didn't work on being like, okay, I want to get this group to a thousand people joining me every week. The core group is probably fluctuates from like 50 to 100 people. Mm -hmm. They've come like every week for a year and a half. Mm. And they're on this journey with me and they give me feedback. It's not even feedback, right? What they do is tell me if this is true for them. Mm. And that is all I need. And thankfully, most of them are true for them and it resonates with them. Mm. And then I'm also, uh, just by the virtue of my exposure to so many different types of people, I think the breadth of people I get exposed to is so wide Uh, You know, from going back home and hanging out with my family um, all the way to billionaires that I might hang out with and all the women in between. I'm just data collecting on all of the various situations and stories and things that um, people do to keep this inequality going, Mm -hmm. you know, men and women to themselves. So then I've done that for a year and a half. And I also, so that firstly was fear, stress testing. The other one was just to finish the damn thing because I'm a person of service. So if I have to write it for me, I don't care. But if I have to write it for other people, I will deliver. Mm. Um, So that's how I finished it because it was, I had to do it every week. (laughs) No, I was going to ask you like how the hell you fitted in writing this book in between. I write quite fast. What I do is I think about the thing for ages and ages and ages. And then the last like part of it the doing happens really quickly yeah like I can get a 2,000 word essay out in anything from one and a half to three hours and just sit and write it very fast so then um that was it just to get it finished but then also I love the idea of serialization Mm. which is very Victorian right it's like Dickens style you release a chapter you release a chapter each week you get people really excited and going the reason I'm starting it again is because I feel much more crystal clear about the tone of voice and what I want to achieve with it at the end. Because when I was writing, I didn't really know, like, what the outcome was. And there's this thing where publishers want you to write a memoir. They want trauma porn on how you did it. Yes. And I was... I didn't want to write that book. Yeah. Why don't... Why didn't I want to do it? Because my... So much of my life's public. Yeah. Like, keep some of my stuff to myself. Also, I don't really want my... 
family or my son to be rereading like every detail of how everything was hard or whatever and I think women and women of colour especially women writers are expected to write this hard done by story of you know how they overcame challenges everyone likes to know how someone overcame their challenges whereas I'm thinking I want to write a handbook that feels like I said like a like a personal philosophy Mm -hmm. so what I'm now having to do is go back and edit every single essay to meet this tone of a manifesto which has a very different revolutionary tone of voice to the language is very different the language is so different um so i'm doing it again but also i'm doing it because it's super tight now it's Mm. like tight it's i think 45 essays 45 weeks delivered emailed workshop and then also i'm gonna get i mean then from a business point of view people have already started pre-ordering it Mm mm-hmm so I basically built up pre-orders for the book by having this core group of advocates with me every single week for yeah. a year. Like what author would not want their own community that they see, not like a Patreon or an Instagram account, like a community that they have this intimate time with every single week that tells them what they think about their yeah. their work mm-hmm. or validates it or maybe you don't need validation but you just need like feedback folk whatever you know different authors need different things right what i need to know is that i've got this very tight early community of advocates who are literally going to talk about this book for the next year and then when it comes out hopefully they're going to talk about it for another year I'm sure and if i've got a year of pre-orders i think that's pretty cool <laughs> you, yeah I mean, I've got no doubt this book, this book will do very well. I think, as we said, you know, people are women. Women are hungry for like, we're still looking for models. We're still looking for guides. And it, in a way, it feels harder than ever, you know, because the, yeah. because this economic, not just economic, the environmental situation, the geopolitical situation, like, you'd think it'd be easier by now but if anything it feels more challenging to try and create a life for yourself that is not just one that you've absorbed through conditioning yeah I don't find it challenging anymore and I think Mm. that's a good thing right because then I'm a product of my own work yeah um your case your your own case yeah like I genuinely don't find it challenging to feel yeah, I don't find it challenging. I think that one of the important things for me, you, you've you known me a long time. I don't really care about awards or accolades. I don't care if this is a bestseller mm. at all. I care that it gets read and absorbed and appreciated and it changes the way that people think about their lives. Mm-hmm. I've written all of the chapter summaries and given them away for free because I don't want there to be a barrier to be for someone to have this information. And... Um, you know, for me, it's just like the way that we hope to change things or the way that I've gotten to where I've gotten has been so much, as I said, about my interior thinking, um, that that's the first step, really. Mm -hmm. The first step is like, understand that this is an issue for you not just for the outside world and then 
work to yeah like I said on chapter one self-reflect to to self-design because nothing's challenging if you've set the rules Mm -hmm. if if the game is a game that you've designed in fact one of my essays is called play games you can win we didn't even we don't even have time to get on that's one of my favorite game game theory that's literally one of my favorite essays I think it might have been the no it's the second essay I wrote play games you can win and then at the end, what I say is the holy grail is you've designed your own game. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think that's how I feel about it. And I'm, I am excited about it. And I was about to say I'm nervous about it, but I'm actually not. Because no. if no one gives this shit, this is a game where I've come to in my own like lack of anxiety. Well, you've written your own personal handbook, which yeah. is what. If it works for me, it's like that's your dream book. You can <laughs> if just it read it to me. The I'm end of fine time. with it. I'll just send it around on email, WhatsApp it to my mates. I can't see wait to like read it. it in full. I've really enjoyed, it. and as I said to you, I feel like the writing is. If you've been trying to strike a new tone, you've nailed it. Thanks, because I don't. You know, I'm not a writer. I'd love that. My my dreams to be a writer. Mm. Um, I would say you are. Yeah, but you're a communicator. I'm a communicator, but when I read really beautiful sentences by people who yeah, are that's... writers, I'm just like, oh, it's like breathtaking. Yeah. Like you have to stop reading and be like, oh, let me just savor that sentence. Yeah, it that is was wild so how some people good. can put together a sentence. I know. I'm Absolutely not necessarily wild. that person, but. Um, in fact, one more thing about um, the book being done in this reading group before is on Monday, a couple of days ago, uh, I had members read it aloud for the first time ever. Oh, wow. It was insane. It was like, I felt like a cult leader. I mean, <laughs> I the, like, the, tone, I like, the tone of that introduction... It's very culty, isn't it? It's giving, like... Some sort of new leader of a new commune. But imagine if womanhood was a cult. Think about what people do for their cults. They do anything for their cults. Imagine if the cult was your own womanhood. And imagine if the cult was your own equality. Like, how far would you go to preserve that? And, you know, one of the things in the second sex that really struck me was about how... um, women don't identify with other women the way that like black people identify with other black people um and that's part of the problem with equalities because women don't look at each other and be like we have the same plight the same issues we're all we don't see ourselves as a single oppressed unit yeah so therefore you know like divide and conquer and i think if you can create i'm very sensitive to cults and conspiracy theories because what I don't want to be is a super cult guru salesperson type thing that's not my vibe at all um so I constantly walk on this tightrope of like inspiring people while also telling them it's about themselves Mm -hmm. I'm not your guru type thing Mm. um but what I do think is if you can create this obsession with yourself and your own freedom, like you would fight to preserve that at all costs mm-hmm. and you just wouldn't bow down for it. The way that people are willing to die for religions, willing to die for fictional religious leaders, that they're, they're willing to die for things that don't even aren't even tangible. Mm. Uh, so imagine if you were willing to die, which women have in history. I think about this all the time, that people have literally died for our freedom, right? Like imagine if 
women today were willing to protect their freedom at all costs. That, to me, is, like, quite powerful thing. So now the language is trying to, uh, I guess, rally the troops. So it's very, like, you know, we must prevail (laughs) (laughs) well Um, on that note Sean (laughs) on that final quotation thank you so much for making the time for sharing the contents of your brilliant brain with me once again always a pleasure much to think about um and good luck with new methods I feel like it's going to be a resounding success thank you baby thanks for your support